There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A very good afternoon to you and welcome to The Late Lunch. This is Orla Carmody sitting in for Jerry Kelly for the rest of the week. And I spotted a lovely post this morning from Natalie Kelly, who is the dynamo behind the Draw to Dolls group. And she says, in a society that has you counting money, pounds, calories and steps... Be a rebel and count your blessings instead. And I thought that was a lovely thought for the day. So thank you so much for that. And Natalie, we've lots of interesting things on the programme today. A bat lady, a sculptor and interestingly, a couple of items with a cycling theme. And I mentioned yesterday, if you were listening, that I'm fond of cycling myself. And that, of course, gave rise to a usual tease from a usual family member whose name won't be revealed who is always giving out to me because I cycle an e-bike. And this particular person likes to tell me that that's cheating. And my response to that is always, well, you know what? 80% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And if you have a push bike and it stays in the shed 100% of the time, well, it's not doing you any good at all. But if you're cycling your e-bike with great glee and enjoyment most days or as often as you can, well, apparently it gives you 80% of the exercise that a push bike gives. So an e-bike is not sort of like a fully electric item like a scooter. You know, you see people on the scooters and they're whizzing by and they're not making any effort at all. Well, on an e-bike, you do have to cycle. You have to actually work at it. Now, you can tune it up or tune it down. You can put it up to the turbo charge and it does give you loads of help or you can turn it right down to eco and you're getting only a really gentle little push. It's like when you're going up a hill, you have that little gentle palm in in your back helping you up the hill. So it's absolutely wonderful. But the thing I love most about it is, is the absolute glee it gives you when you cycle. It makes you feel like you're 12 again. Do you remember that feeling of the wind in your hair and it being no effort? Well, that's what cycling an e-bike is like. It really does give you enthusiasm for it. So I'm, I'm standing and sticking to my grounds. Um, 80% of something is better than 100% of nothing. They are expensive, of course, the e-bikes. We know that. But they are, I think, worth it. I, I saved my little shillings and awarded myself the e-bike uh, for a big birthday, a number of years ago and I was very lucky I collected it just a day before the first lockdown and during that very first lockdown with Covid I didn't feel so restricted because I was able to whiz around the neighbourhood and uh, it's very very uh, worthwhile and I'm looking forward to hearing from Jim Gavin later in the programme who cycles 100 kilometres a day in his 80s so that's going to be so interesting to hear about and also Stephen McElligot who has a cargo bike and is really a great advocate for it as a means of transporting uh, small kids around without uh, damaging the environment in any way but first of all we're going to to meet or hear from Jodie Duggan and Jodie is joining us on the line. She's from Ashburn. We hear many things or we have done in the past about the whole issue of coercive control and it's in the context of abusive relationships and sometimes we think that only pertains to older people or long established relationships. Very unusual to hear it pertaining to very a very, very young couple in their late teens, early 20s and with very serious consequences. And Jodie, you're very welcome to LMFM today. 
Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Jodie. Tell me about the start of this relationship, because presumably the relationship started quite well before it descended into into a dark place. Yeah, so I started seeing Jake when I was 17. Um, So like that, I was very young and vulnerable. And it was kind of the first boy that had shown an interest in me and that kind of fancied each other. So um, I didn't see any wrong or any red flags at the beginning. Um, It was... It wasn't the best relationship. It was it was okay at the start, you know. And um, he didn't start off with the abuse. It would be little things like telling me I couldn't go to places or I couldn't see friends. And then it slowly built up to being physical and then more controlled. And with like my bank account, I had to have my location on. And and kind of like that kind of quest control started then. And Jodie, um, in those early stages, were you living at home with your family? Were you living independently? Or how did he come to have so much control over you, do you think? I lived with my family, um, but he actually rented a room in Retote where I live. And I'd go to his house, say, on a Friday and we'd have an argument and he would not let me leave until the Sunday or the Sunday night. Sometimes the Monday morning and me and my mum would have an argument because I'd be coming in the door leaving house on Friday and not coming in until Monday morning and of course like I was so young I was 17, 18 years of age like that's not acceptable but I couldn't tell her why I couldn't leave because if I even said to him that I was even going to go to the shops to get a roll or food or anything it was a big ordeal and I couldn't leave and he was going to kill himself if I left because he knew I was going to tell people or that um, I was going to leave him forever so he wouldn't let me leave. And at any stage in those weekends that you were staying at his place, would you be sort of feeling defiant of your family? Was that part of your kind of teenage expression or were you really dying to get home but you just couldn't tell your mum? Oh, I wanted to get home. Like, there was never any issues with my family. Um, my mum never liked him from the beginning. The first time my dad even met him, the first thing he said was he was far too advanced for Jody. I was 17, he was 19, but he was far beyond his years compared to me. I was just so young. Um, I never had a fallen out with my family. I always wanted to go home and be with them. I've always, I always wanted to tell them what was going on. Why couldn't get the words to tell them? Because I knew it would upset them. And I also couldn't accept the fact that I was caught up in all this and I felt like I was stuck. And then his behaviour began to get worse and worse. Yeah, it began to get physical. Actually physically hurting you? Yeah, so he like pushed me down the stairs uh, like smothering me with pillows, he'd choke me, and um, he'd he'd never fully punch me, but he press his knuckles as hard as he could into like my hips or my thighs or even the side of my face, and I'd be left with like knuckle marks on my face. I'd have black eyes. He'd pin me on the bed and hold a knife to his neck if he wasn't going to hurt me, so he was going to kill himself, and that would be my fault. And I'd have to watch him kill himself. And at that age, that's a lot to have on your shoulders, and I believed it was my fault. He manipulated me into believing that, yeah, it was my fault that I would make him do these things. And I basically just needed to shut my mouth and didn't just take it. And Jodie, that is so hard to listen to. And, and as you say, you were so young. Did you yeah. did you have a, a best friend? Did you have anybody at all you felt you could even hint yeah. that this was going on to? Yeah, I thought I was, but obviously it wasn't very clear. And then I kept it so quiet and I hid it so well that no one suspected the extent to what it was. My best friend didn't like him. I asked her to just kind of get on with him for me. 
Um, but he didn't like her also, but he didn't like her because he knew she was picking up on these things and didn't like how he was speaking to me and how he'd act around people. And if me and her would ever meet up, he'd always be there or he'd show up. Or even if we were getting ready for a night out, he'd show up to my house. And she's like, why can't we just get ready as girls, you know? But he'd show up, he'd be there for a drink beforehand. I think he knew in the back of his head, I wanted to tell her. And he was trying to stop that from happening. So he could sense it changing. And when or how bad did it have to get, Jodie, before you could actually find it in yourself to say, I've got to get out of this. It's too dangerous. Um, there was a lot like like he'd smother me until I nearly passed out. And in the back of my head, I was thinking he doesn't know when to stop. Like this could, I could just pass out and not wake up. Like that's easily done. When he pushed me down the stairs, like I hit my head. It's easily done that it could go too far and I could have died and out on my stand extreme but like he was in my room or after a night out and he completely uplifted my room it was unrecognisable after the drawers and my wardrobe were pulled out all my things were smashed up he was slamming my head against the wall the headboard was broken the bathroom was broken he like kicked I had like a full length mirror in my room he kicked it the glass fell on me so there was blood on the walls and like I would just tried to break up with him that's all I was doing it wasn't a heated argument I literally just sat him down after a night out and was like I can't do this anymore he was arguing whilst you're out he was kicking up a fuss and I just said look I can't do this it's strange. I know you did it's- finally manage to get away uh, but yeah. he, he didn't get a sentence he got a suspended sentence how did that make you yeah. feel? It was a kick in the teeth it really was um, to go through all that and then for someone to just walk out um, but basically just a slap in the hand I just didn't think it was good enough um, at the time I didn't realise it could have been appealed and I just took it as right okay the judge has spoken that's what she set in place I kind of just had to accept it until the state actually appealed it and uh, it went to another court I know he did make a full apology but you don't really accept it no I, I don't accept it at all not at all he apologised because the judge pulled him up and not apologising throughout the whole case. His side never once um, acknowledged me and apologised for all the harm that he'd done. And the next sitting, they came out with an apology, a written apology. Um, so I just don't think that's good enough to, to give an apology after being told to give one. It obviously wasn't very sincere. And in my opinion, it, he didn't write that by reading it. I, I know for a fact he did, he did not write that. Someone wrote that up for him and he signed the end. So... I really just don't accept the apology. So, Jodie, you've tried to make meaning out of this by uh, campaigning, I know, for Women's Aid. And there's yeah. a fashion show now in Rathoth that you're supporting. Tell yeah. me about that. So we're throwing a fashion show with Women's Aid. Um, it's in our salon. So the tickets are actually sold out at the moment. But you can uh, buy a non-attendant ticket online on our and um, It's 15 euros. So all the money that we make we're hoping to send then to uh, Women's Aid and like that Women's Aid they're going to come down to the fashion show they're going to have a speech we're going to have about 13 models uh, girls in their 20s girls up to girls in their 60s 70s and going to model clothes uh, hair and makeup Sounds absolutely lovely and even though it's sold out you can actually support that by give us that uh, online address again if somebody wants to just donate to support it Yeah so it's on our Arsalon.ie. Arsalon.ie. Well, look, yeah. Jodie, uh, the best of luck with it and well done on putting a, a, a positive focus on an awful experience. And I hope you will be able to put it behind you now and move on with your life. And thank you so much for talking to us on LMFM today.
Now, you've often heard it said that age is only a number and my next guest seems to live that to the fullest degree. He has lived all over the world, done some very interesting jobs. He's 83 years old and he cycles 120 kilometres in a day. Jim Gavin, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. Jim, how did you get going on cycling? And I know you have a lot of issues around how we must share the roads, the motors, the lorries, the bikes. We've got to share the, the highway as such. Mm-hmm. Well, I was in Spain for 12 years and that's where I really took it up, you know. And I carried on with it then when I came back home. And you, I, I'm seeing, seeing here that you do it 120 kilometres in a day, no bother to you. How, how do you work up to that? Well, that's no bother to us, if us, and I just don't go on my own, but I'm at the RD Cycling Club. And if you do it regular, it's no bother. A hundred and odd would be no bother to us when you're doing it week after week. Just a pleasure, really. So you're a great believer in um, keeping going with the exercise, regardless of what age you are. Oh, for goodness sake, I'm not. Like you mentioned yourself, age, is, it's just a number. Well, it is to me and lots and lots of people like me. And tell me just about the, the RD club. Who, who's in the cycling club and how often do you go out? Well, mostly weekends. And uh, we cycle from uh, Eamon Martin's place there, the uh, cafe in RD. That's mostly where it's run from. And do you sort of pack the lunch and have a nice uh, a nice get together oh, no, while you're there? Oh no, we can. Oh no, when when we go on a, a, a decent spin, we we'll we can always stop off at coffee shops or wherever you know, maybe uh, Black Rock or Tarik Macross or wherever you are. You'll always you'll always find a cafe open where you can go in and have a drink. Indeed, and of course you take the you take water with you as well. And tell me, have you ever been um, afraid on the road? Have you ever been threatened by a motorist or have you ever felt somebody just didn't get it? That thing about giving cyclists space? Now, that is a lot of the time. That is a lot of the time where they're too close to you. And they just haven't copped on yet, the motorist. When I'm out myself on my car, I make sure that I'm in meter or more from a cyclist if I'm passing but that doesn't that's not to every motorist on the road Yeah I think when you're both a motorist and a cyclist you understand the other person's position but maybe there are some people out there who are motorists who have just never cycled so they just don't understand what it's like when something comes close isn't that right? And there are there's so many signs on the road now on the on the on lampposts and stuff, to show that you're supposed to be a meter and a half from the cyclist when you're overtaking, but that that's not that doesn't happen. I know, and and what can we do except keep talking about it like this and really ask motorists to be considerate of drivers, but equally to ask our cyclists to be considerate of motorists. I think it's a mutual consideration, isn't it? Well. Uh, Now, I've been cycling for a good while, and whenever we're out, we do take heed of the motorists. Now, and that's any time we're out in a group, we will always single file, 
someone will shout and it will be single file if there's traffic. So, I mean, I, I don't think, especially with our crowd anywhere around RD and the cycling club, I think we adhere to the rules of the road specifically. And, and Jim, and do, you, do you wear all the, the brightly coloured gear? Um, I know, yes, I know people joke about mammals, the middle-aged men in Lycra, but the cycling gear is lovely. It's very comfortable. Yes, and you'd find that every, I'd say 99% of the cyclists on the road have a light on the front of their bike and a red light on their back. Practically everyone who, who's, you know, who's uh, anyways a cyclist will have those two lights on their bike, no matter if they're out at two, two o'clock in the afternoon or midnight. We would you'll still have your uh, very very reflective lights. And you'll also have your high vis gear on, won't you? Of course, of course, yes. That, even even down to the shoes, you'd have you know you'd have something on. We do we do go out with with high vis and and lights lights in particular. And. Obviously, cycling is accessible to anyone. Do you think you could take it up in older age if you hadn't done it as a young person? I suppose if you had a decent instructor just to get you started, I'm sure, I'm sure you could. I well, but here, I'm doing it now at 83, so if I can do it, sure, anybody can do it. I saw uh, an older lady cycling on the ramparts the other morning and she was on a large kind of a tricycle. It looked very safe and comfortable and she was flying along, clearly enjoying herself. Mm-hmm. Have you ever tried to tricycle? No, 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 no. no, no I'm, I'm not ready for one of them yet. <laughs> Obviously not, Jim. Obviously not. And tell me, you, you, what did you work at in your day, Jim? We worked. I, I worked in, I don't know how many countries I was in, but we built, I, I was on the building of airfields. We did 16 different airfields all over while I was working. 16 different airfields. Zambia, Saudi were two of the loveliest places I was. And Poland. So, so you were a, a working nomad for a number of years? <laughs> That was me. I gave it up when the family decided, when, when it was too much to be away from the family, so I packed it in then. It was about 35, 40 when I packed the overseas job. And now you spend uh, plenty of your time in the Tully Allen men's shed. Well, here, you, I've just got back, I've just got back from there now. And you couldn't be in a better place for like two or three or four hours twice, three times a week. It's absolutely brilliant. What do you do there, Jim? I'm in the polytunnel there, which is we've tomatoes and flowers and stuff like that. And, and I imagine great companionship and friendship. Oh, the crack is not, the crack's 90 there. The crack is 90. Yeah, and we had a, we had a, a, a fitness instructor there day for nearly two hours and by Jesus he did a great job Well if you don't yeah. use it you're going to lose it isn't that the message Jim? That's it and he was a great chap for an Aaron Murphy from from Monster Bice a young fellow and he was a bloody great instructor Yeah, all we, right, all well, delighted. we were delighted with him 
Well, Jim, thank you for talking to us today and continued success with all your different adventures and uh, great to have you on LMFM today. Now, with the autumn drawing in, we're going to start thinking about the spooky things and the bats and the ghouls and the ghosties and all of those things. And obviously bats, those little creatures, as I mentioned, that flutter around at night. I think they get some bad press, actually, myself. And Susan Kerwin is a lifelong lover of bats and she's going to tell us all about them. You're very welcome, Susan. Hi Orla, how are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm good. Your interest in bats came in a roundabout way. I know you are a, a qualified falconer, but somehow there's a connection with you having been diagnosed with cancer that got you interested in bats. How did that happen? That's correct. So back when in 2007, I was diagnosed, at 27, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And uh, at that time, my two children, my two sons were quite young. Um, I was a single parent. And as you can imagine, it was an extremely overwhelming, stressful time. And I was suffering with depression and um, insomnia. So I would spend a lot of time at night idle, looking for something to do, take my mind off of things. And it started when I ventured out the back of my house one evening, having a cup of tea. And I noticed that there was a colony of bats that were roosting in the neighbour's roof. So I would watch the bats and... Before I knew it, hours had passed and I was watching these bats coming and going in the night and I needed to learn more about them. I'm very curious, wanted to know what species we had. So I went and I bought a bat detector and started to study the bats and find out more about local bats in the area. And it it took me away from that evening, the evening problems I was having. It gave me something else to focus on. I looked forward to it so much and it gave me such a love for, for the species. Before so, I ask you about them, you are well again now, are you? I am. I'm Thank doing God. great. Yeah. Thank God. Good, yeah. good. But you developed a lovely interest in the bats and you began to understand them, I suppose. And, and a lot of what we feel about bats is misunderstanding, isn't it? Totally. It really is. You know, um, and it, a lot of it comes from, from the media as well and how they're portrayed. We've always been pushed these pictures of bats as uh, evil demons you know when we think of demons we think of bat wings when we think of angels we think of bird wings so it's always been kind of ingrained into us that uh, bats are, are are related to evil whereas it couldn't really be more um more from the truth because bats are just one of the most amazing creatures and they because they're nocturnal we don't know we don't see them as much we don't know as much about them but they're vital to a healthy ecosystem and the species that we have here in Ireland they're all nine of them are insectivorous meaning that they feed only on insects so they're out there at night eating their body weight in insects such as midges mosquitoes and other small winged aphids and you know they do a huge amount of of work for the farming communities in saving millions of euros every year on the reduction of, of pesticides and chemicals that are needed to be used to grow our, our foods. And of course, that means less chemicals coming into the food chain, which is so important to us. Now, everyone wants to go more organic. And we have these little bats to thank for it. You know, so, so they are literally clearing out the insects that would actually be overrunning the place if we didn't have bats. 
Yes, and all over the world, the the you know bats, especially in places like South America, they are vital to reducing the cases of malaria, Zika virus, because they're feeding on these mosquitoes um, that are spreading the viruses. So they're they're a really important part of the ecosystem. But not only are bats around the world feeding on insects, they're also pollinators and seed dispersal. So we rely on them for everyday foods like or coffee that we enjoy in the morning, or uh, bananas that we might have for breakfast. And even the cotton shirts that and clothes that we wear, they rely on bats to um, stop the insects that will damage and destroy those crops. Uh, mangoes, all different types of fruit, and of course, the tequila plant. Um, so agave that produces tequila, one of Mexico's largest exports, relies totally on the bats to pollinate. Uh, and, so and you're mentioning that, products there. Yeah, you're mentioning like tequila and other products like that that are grown around the world. And obviously they have their own species of bats there. But do they have the same fear of bats that we kind of find quite prevalent here? Is, is yeah. that a kind of a universal thing? It is. It is, you know, and I suppose uh, we have our very famous Bram Stoker from north side of Dublin that wrote the beautiful novel um, Dracula. And it was um, that, I suppose, in, in, in Europe that would have sparked their relation between bats and Dracula. As, you know, he was depicted as being able to, to transform into a bat and then he would fly off at night drinking blood from innocent people. But all through different histories, they are depicted in, in, in either the negative way or the positive way. Because, you know, in, in places like China, bats are seen to be a very, very positive um, species uh, to bring luck and light, longevity into into your life as well. So, but in South America, bats were feared because that's where our three or the three only species of vampire bat can be found. So central to South America. Well, I think, um, Susan, if you know something, it changes your view of it. And I have to tell you that um, I found a bat in my bathroom one time a few weeks back. No, it's longer. It's probably this time last year. And I thought it was the cutest little thing I'd ever seen. And I probably would have had that thing of, oh, it's going to fly and it's going to get caught in my hair or whatever, because I live out in the country and they'd flutter around quite a lot at night. But this little thing in the corner of the bathroom huddled, he was so cute. And we just got a kind of a cardboard board and put it under him and and literally lifted him to the window and off he fluttered. But in the few moments we got to look at him, he was actually really cute. I mean, are they dangerous? Will they bite you? Is it silly to think of them as cute? No, they are. They actually are adorable. They're beautiful looking little animals. Uh, I always say to people, if you're handling wildlife, you did the right thing, scooped him up nice and gently and a little bit of cardboard brought him out. Any animal, especially wild animals, that's scared will try to bite you. They're just defending themselves. So I, I advise everybody, if you're going to have to handle an animal, a wild animal, always wear protective gloves. They have the, they, or Their teeth are so small that it would be very difficult for them to penetrate into our own skin. But, you know, it's always advisable to, to handle any wild animal when needed um, with gloves. But they are, are, you're right, they're adorable. And when people see them, and they, they, you know, and they see that they are this cute, 
small furry animal and not the the large teeth and big eyes that they would be depicted as um i think it does change their it, it, it changes how they look at them definitely now they are they are preserved species aren't they you often see signs in places don't disturb them they're preserved yes they are so all bats are protected in ireland and it is it is a crime to um, injure or to disturb their roof sites. That's very important to um, be aware of. Um, if there is, there, we often get calls from people to say that they have bat roosts in their homes. Um, most of the time, people don't even know that the bats are there because they're under the eaves of their house or they're under some loose tiles. But if there, if it does become an issue where bats have maybe gotten into the attic space. The National Parks and Wildlife Service are there. It's a free char, or it's a free service. They come out and they'll assess it for you, and they'll find where the bats have been entering, and uh, they will um, they will give you a license to to carry out works then. But it has to be done after uh, November, and this is because bats they will roost in warmer spaces during the summer months. So you might notice that they're back at the side of the house or in your your outbuildings. Uh, in the summer months, because that's what they'll use for the maternity roost. And then into the colder periods in the winter, they use derelict buildings, underground caves, and even trees. So that's important that people know as well. And quite often when you look at a tree in your garden, you expect there to be insects living there and, of course, birds. But people are not always aware that trees are a natural roost site for bats too. So they'll go into the cracks in the trees, um, splits in the branches, and you, in in one small area, you can have a lot of bats, as as you saw from from your little visitor. They are quite tiny, and they can cuddle up together. So just be aware that if you are doing any work in the garden to tree your trees as well, that. And uh, it's something to take no- note of that there could be bats living in, in those as well. And of course, they do have the built in radar. So that thing of them getting caught up in you, they're not going to. They're not going to bump into you no. because they will sense you before you sense them. That's exactly it. So they work with echolocation. And this is when they create a series of clicks that come from the larynx or in some species um, to a complicated kind of looking nose leaf as well. But they send out the sound. It, goes out into the environment and then it brings them back a map of their environment. So it allows them, even in complete darkness, to be able to tell if there uh, is a, a, an insect, like a soft-bodied insect that they want to feed on, or if there's a human in front of them or a building that they want to avoid. And they want to avoid you. So this is a myth. And we all grew up with it. I think it was just our parents would tell us, oh, bats are out, get in, they'll be stuck in your hair, you know. So it's... Um, it's it's, 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 it's a part of kind of the pishrogues and the, the, the mythology, but it's not really true at all. And obviously as Halloween season approaches, as I've said, and obviously the bats are on the move if they're moving from the warmer uh, locations to the, the colder ones, we are going to see them fluttering about in the evening, but we've nothing to worry about. No, absolutely nothing. And at this time of the year, when people find bats that have come in a window or they're found inside in a room, they're only the juveniles. And like all young um, young animals... They just went astray. Exactly. So just always reach out, get some help and uh, be kind because they they're not there to harm you. They're actually, I always say to people, don't be scared of the bats. You should be scared of what would happen if they were all to disappear. Well, that's a great message to leave us with. Susan Kerwin, who runs a bat sanctuary. Thank you very much for joining us on LMFM. Back after this. 
You're on The Late Lunch and Dundalk photographer Stephen McElligot posted a picture there a few days back and it really intrigued us. It's a lovely picture of a machine known as a cargo bike and he's going to tell us what it's about and what it does. Stephen, you're very welcome. Hi, Orla. Thank you. So, Stephen, tell me what the cargo bike is for those who haven't seen one and don't know what we're talking about. Describe it, please. Oh, well, a cargo bike is busy. They come in electric or non-electric. Uh, they're very popular in the Netherlands, and it's either a two-wheel bike or it could be a three-wheel bike with a large box on the front. And the boxes can vary in size, so you can have a small box uh, for just personal needs and shopping, or you can have a large box if you're uh, part of a business and you want to do courier or deliveries. And then you will have a family box, uh, sometimes a family box and a personal box, and one where you can carry the kids uh, and even a fully-sized adult, <laughs> if you want. They're absolutely amazing and they look great and they look very solid. Are they very difficult to actually cycle if you're carrying two or three kids on, on board the one machine? Well, I've never actually cycled a, I've never actually cycled a non-electric one, but I have cycled uh, uh, the electric ones. And the electric ones are... Um, easy, very, very easy to cycle. Uh, and I've never had an issue. It's just like cycling a normal bike. In fact, it's easier than cycling a normal push bike. No real issue at all. I t- it'd take you maybe a couple of minutes to get used to it, you know. You're right when you say they're very popular um, in other countries. I had occasion to go over and back to The Hague in, Scot- in um, Holland quite a few times because my son was studying over there. And everybody went around The Hague with a cargo bike. You'd have women on the school run, you'd have dads coming out of work and collecting the kids, you'd have the infant, the toddler, the bigger child all piled on board this bike and it was quite normal. But you were saying that sometimes people have a kind of a bit of an issue about them here. Why is that, do you think? I think it's just because it's an unusual sight. They've never actually seen them before. So when you see you coming along the road in a big sort of bike like this, they're like, wow, like, what is that? Some people think it's brilliant. Some people think it looks ridiculous. But I think people forget that many, many years ago in Ireland and in Dundalk and uh, Drada, these things used to be uh, very popular. They were known as the butcher's bicycle. I was they going to electric. say, every butcher's boy went around town with his bike with the big basket on the front. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and you had the big wooden box as well. And some people even, you know, with no wheels on them, didn't actually cycle them. They actually hauled them with their hands. You know, um, I think they're just a, an old guy. He's very popular. He's called Wee Georgie. You'll often see photos of him up online. My dad knew him when he was young and he had one and he just carried it around, you know, wheeled it around with his, with his hand. Um, so, and the, and the other thing as well is that uh, they're great for families because over in Amsterdam, as you were saying, like 76%, I was just reading online, 76% of people in Amsterdam actually cycle and drive. So, um, you know, it's not like people are giving up their cars altogether. Uh, not everybody chooses it because they believe that it's better for the environment. It's just that it's better for their finances, personal finances too, you know. So, and better for health um, and better for all kinds of reasons. And even putting the kids in, in a bike at a small age like that, they're kind of getting muscle memory about this is a great way to get around, aren't they? Well, this is the thing. And, and, and the thing about children is children actually really enjoy it more than the adults do. Because the children, when you're in a car or a car seat, you're not really getting to see the world around you. You know, you've got this little window uh, that you can see that maybe a blue sky from. Um, but when the child is in one of these, they get to see the world around them. Uh, the wind's blowing through their hair. They're giggling. They're laughing. I put my young fella in it and he just thinks it's hilarious. 
Um, and he just doesn't want to go in the car at all. He wants of course, to go they're, the da- they're down at then. sort of their eye level, aren't they? So, yeah, they can see so much of what's going on around. But I suppose the one thing in the Scandinavian countries and The Hague, as I said, or, or Amsterdam, where I have seen these all over the place, it's that they're safe, that their bicycle lanes are so well established. I mean, do you find driving or cycling around Dundalk with your kids, would you have worries about traffic? Uh, I do have my worries about traffic just as I would be in a car. But, you know, here's the thing. I was looking at the statistics last night in the Garda Shikana website because, you know, I, I knew I was coming on the radio and I was thinking to myself, I, I was just interested to see, you know, the safety. And I looked at the drivers. Um, and to date, from January 2023 to now, there has been 45 drivers killed and 30 passengers. And only three e-scooters and four pedal cyclists have died. Now, any death is... is is, is a sorry one but I mean the statistics are there that cycling is actually uh, uh, safer uh, than, than than driving believe it or not cycling or not in Ireland so I mean and you're looking at you know globally 41,000 deaths around the globe per year pedal cyclists and 1.35 million deaths in cars so, that's, a, that's a great point you're making that it could potentially be safer if we are all very aware of them and if we put in the cycle lanes, etc. But I suppose trying to encourage people to use these kind of forms of transport, it, it makes so much sense to take cars off the road a, a, as much as we can, particularly if you live in a town centre, if you live in an area where it's quite easy to get around. But I suppose the question on people's minds would be, yeah, but they're probably very expensive. How expensive are the cargo bikes? Right, so uh, that's an, uh, one thing. When people ask me the price and I tell them the price, they're like, oh, would you not be better off getting a, a motorbike or something for that? So brand new, you're looking at five and a half to six and a half thousand for a really, really top of the range one. And you're looking at about three thousand uh, for the Dutch uh, wooden box one. Right. And is the five now, and a half thousand one, is that an e-bike? That's an e-bike. So okay. you're looking at fully electric there um, and for the kids. And that would be on the low end. Um, I know the Urban Arrow family is about 7,100 or something like that. However, when you, look at, when you look at your personal finances on your car, let's say you have a car, but you're looking to get a second car. Look at the running costs of your car at the moment. And I looked at mine, and mine was coming in at about €6,000 a year to run. And that's not, like, let's say you have a loan on top of that for a car, 24 grand, 400 euro a month. You know, that's some serious money a year that you're spending. So just on running costs alone, you would have the bike paid for. And you're presenting it, yeah, you're presenting it there as a real alternative to a second car. If there is a family car for the long distances for whatever you need, but that is a real alternative, isn't it? Instead of a second car and indeed um, the health benefits of just getting out and cycling. Yeah, but then you also have go-cars. So let's say you want to give up the car altogether and you have this go-car car sharing and you always have a modern car. You don't have to worry about tax or insurance or anything like that. It's, it's like a 10 or an hour, 20 cent or something per kilometre uh, after your first 50 free or something. And, you know, if you really need, gosh, I really need to get away, well, that's an option as well if you wanted to give up the car altogether. However, I always say to people, look, I'm not asking you to give up your car completely, but you could look at it as an option. And many people have gone for these bikes as a second car and decide, you know what, I'm going to get rid of my car altogether. Yeah, and, but, and for know. city living, I suppose, I, I don't think it would be reasonable maybe for somebody out in the country to actually think that they could get rid of the car completely. 
No, but here's the thing, like even out in the country in Germany and places like that, they have a sort of an agreement or something like that with farmers where they have cycle lanes going through fields all the way into the urban area. Amazing. Uh, so it is possible, Orla, it is possible to do it. But, you know, the thing is, is we're not doing it. Instead, I'm hearing stories and rumours that the government are looking to tax these things and, you know what I mean, uh, put a price on them because, you know, they are, they are competing with the car industry. So on one hand, we have the government telling us we need to get on more bikes. Uh, we need more bike lanes. Uh, we need you to stop using your car. We need you to buy electric. And when we go and do that, then they're taxing them. Uh, because they're losing out. And know, indeed, uh, even in the development of the cycle lane network, I mean, our infrastructure, we've done well, but we've a long way to go. We've a long way to go still, haven't we? We do. Like, I do feel safer on, on, on the cycle lanes. However, uh, and I have nearly had a, a new fair, a new uh, near accidents on this thing, but, you know, no different than I would have on a, on a pedal push bike, you know, that I owned before. So, but however, I do feel a lot safer on the bike than I do in a car. I'll finish by telling you, Stephen, I I read a very funny article in the Irish Times. I don't think they meant it to be funny, but it was funny uh, about the cargo bikes. And they were saying it's a bit like sea swimmers. How will how will you know a sea swimmer? They'll tell you. And in Dublin, Dublin four nice circles. How do you know a cargo bike cyclist? Because they'll tell you. (laughs) And Uh, there's that bit of resentment about it, maybe, or a bit of sort of is it Irish slagging? We we uh, we we don't miss an opportunity when when we can. But look, it's it sounds very. Interesting. And again, thank you for posting that uh, picture. It really intrigued um, our curiosity. And uh, good luck with getting your kids around safely on, on the cargo bike. And thanks for joining us today, Stephen McGilligot. What a fabulous track. You couldn't but tap your feet to a jive bunny and the master mixers. And Eddie Caffrey just popped into the studio to remind me that that was the first ever piece of music played on LMFM in September 1989. And he's also handed me a lovely picture of myself and many of the others members of the LMFM team back then in 1989. And boy, do we look young. That's all I can say about that one. So coming up now to the competition winners, you know we're running the competition this week with the Arc Cinema and we have three winners picked out and each of them will get three tickets for themselves and a couple of buddies to go off to the movies on the night of Wednesday, September the 20th at the Arc Cinema and it's Maria Carton from Water Under Caroline Weldon from Woodtown and Paula Hodgkins from Lawrence Park. Hope you have a lovely night at the movies ladies. You might even bump into one another. Coming up next the Delique sculptor Shane Holland. We're going to hear all about his exhibition that's going to happen at the National Botanic Gardens. You're on the late lunch and there's an exhibition coming up at the National Botanic Gardens called Sculpture in Context and it's opening this week and a Dulique based sculptor Shane Holland has had the great honour of having one of his exhibits included in this fantastic exhibition. It's called Submarino Curra Plain which is a combination, I think, of a submarine and your interest in curricks and your interest in planes. And he's joining us now on the line, Shane. You're very welcome. Yes, Orla, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm having a look at the picture here of your um, exhibit and it's huge. It's quite impressive. I, I can't really judge the size in the picture, but I know there's a part of a Boeing 747 in it. So it must be quite large, is it? Yeah, well, it's a Boeing 707 were the ones that used to run between 1948 and 1980s. So they were kind of pre, pre-747s pre or what they were um, 
they were a bit of a guzzler, but we actually got some uh, some of the recycling material through Dulik. Um, I got a phone call saying that there was some interesting aviation stuff coming in on the back of a truck and to, to look at it. And, uh, you know, the piece is about 11 foot long, I suppose, or 12 foot long is the actual sculpture that it, we made. And it was two air intakes on top of the engines that kind of, when they were jiggled around, they ended up looking slightly... Sur- Kind of created the sculpture using the some of the current building techniques to kind of make the whole shape kind of hang together as a as a submarine. So, so the, that's where it came in with the submarino coraplane. Well, it's it's fantastic, and just to sort of describe it, so the top is shiny metal, it's tubular, it's obviously part of that piece of the Boeing, but the underneath, it's really like the ribs. You, I think you've made it from metal, but it's the ribs that seems to yes indicate the curric, doesn't it? It's a that's the curric bit, yeah, and that's kind of like um, so the lats and ribs that are normally put into curricks underneath the skin would be normally made of wood and they're usually kind of the junction is, is nailed through with a copper nail and then knocked over with a hammer. You know, sometimes there's people under and above kind of knocking things over. So I decided to use that technique to kind of complete the form. And of course, this this particular piece is the homage to John Philip Holland, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking him as, as one of my ancestors, <laughs> given that he's a, well, he's a Munster Holland or a West Cork Holland who ended up in Clare. And of course, my own family heritage has kind of started out down there, you know, as, you know, my grandfather. But there would have been lots of uh, Currocks in Clare. And I've ended up starting to build Currocks and Scarries now over the last six or seven years myself. So I'm a bit of a boat builder as well. So J.P. Holland, the inventor of the submarine, you're claiming him as a bit of an ancestor because of the clear yeah, connection. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't say how close. <laughs> That's, <laughs> it's a bit woolly back in the, you know, in the 1840s, and I, I can't claim that I'm, you know, a bosom buddy. But my official name is actually John Patrick Holland, you know, and my dad is a is a John over in Dunshockland as well. So they were dumb enough to call me John Patrick in a house full of full of Johns. So they changed it to Shane because his name is well. John Patrick. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have that uh, I have that counterclaim as well of having almost the same name as him. And how did you develop this interest in the Currics, particularly? Obviously, as you said, the family connection. But it's it's a pastime in terms of you're out rowing. At your, I think you're the captain On of Currikeen Scary, yeah. But you're an artist. You're, right. you're an artist as well. So it's kind of combining your your two passions. It is, and um, it was a thing which was, you know, a lot of things end up as accidents, but some accidents end up kind of becoming able to be intertwined. And, you know, being a designer and a maker, I kind of was interested because it was, you know, I'm a mead man, but I'm living in Skerries, and I was originally kayaking. And then in our kayak trips, I got, you know, in when you're going around the West Coast, I got to see a lot of currucks upturned and eventually decided at one stage I'd like to build one of them, you know, around 2015 or 16. And of course, you have a great guy called Clive O'Gibney on the Boyne here in, you know, just at, at the Nor, um up near Newgrange. And he he had a kind of a weekend thing where you could start to renovate one of the Torrey Island Corrucks um, in his in his little Corruck Centre in Denor. And I did that. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to build one myself. And I, I, we've now built a few of them in Scaries. And now we have a whole club and people rowing around the, 
the Irish Sea all the time and we've now ended up kind of going down west a lot more in our Curraghs, you know, down to Clare and down to the Aran Islands this year. So it's a thing that's taken off in the last four or five years. And obviously keeping that wonderful tradition of both building and rowing Curraghs alive, which is so important, isn't it? Well, it was a thing, you know, we could see it even even like seven or eight years ago, we could see that it, things were not great on the east on the west coast in terms of you know people were were tending to maybe you know use outboard motors and that the tradition of building boats wasn't as wasn't as um as strong and you know we were aware that that on the east coast there was actually an interest in you know up in warren point there's a club as well and we were thinking that if we set one up in scaries you know it might rejuvenate things on the east coast and we start rowing against each other which we do and people now on the West Coast are taking a lot of interest in what's going on on the East Coast and inviting us down to places, you know, to try and rejuvenate some of their regattas that might have fallen fallen behind with COVID and fallen behind with different things. So the the tradition is great and it's a it's a really unique um and activity. Gr- great and to get people out again, as you say, in the activity. But just back to your um Exhibit in the time we have. I know it's. Yeah. I know you've lovely blue windows along the top of this um, structure, and, and it's like a, the the Jules Verne porthole fantasy, isn't it? It's That's beautiful. It. Well, yeah. Like the, this sculpture doesn't necessarily mean it's you know exact replica of the Holland thing. It's it's more of a notional kind of submarine, and you know, for six year old, I was very interested in the in the botanic gardens. You know, when kids were walking past, you know, do they say it's a submarine? And I've I've passed that test. I think. And the little blue, the little blue portholes are kind of like a notional thing of sailors been inside and and looking out through these kind of fantasy portals. But they're they're recycled glass from these, uh, you know, skin cream <laughs> or face cream things from Nivea. And a, an architect in Dublin actually said, Shane, you do a lot of this kind of rebuilding things from from other things. You know, will you take these blue glass things and figure out something to do with them? So, you know, as a result of all this recycling that went into that. Piece. Uh, I won the award in sculpture and context for the best innovation in sculpture for for climate change action. So it was like about the whole use of recycling and and remaking things. So I was delighted to to pick that up. On well, it, well, it's absolutely wonderful to see it. It looks gorgeous. It really is well worth looking at in the botanic gardens in the next few days. But also even just to say that it is um, that recycling piece. The, the fact that you found bits of a Boeing, you know, on its way to recycling is just amazing, you know, and that you could reuse it. Tell us about the culture night you're having in your studio in Dulik, because we've only a minute left. OK, well, Orla, we have, um, I'm having an open studio night, which is basically various tours around uh, around my facility in, in Dulik Business Park. And you can look at the Culture Night website for, go on to culturenight.ie, I think it is, and then go on to Mead. And you'll see our event there and people can either book in a little trip or a tour around to see what it's like to to work in a kind of a, a designer's or sculptor's studio. So that's on on the 22nd on the Friday night, you know, and things all over the country. But we, I did it last year and it was the first culture night in Dulik and uh, we're welcoming people from the area to come and see. Uh, well, well, well worth bit, going to see that, Shane, in terms of using using the recycling. It's absolutely fascinating. Shane Holland, sculptor from Dulik, thank you so much for joining us. That's where we have to leave it on The Late Lunch today. My thanks to Louise Walsh, our producer. Best of luck to everybody going to the Late Town races this afternoon. Hope you have a wonderful time. I'll be back this time tomorrow. All going well. Until then, have a great afternoon. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.